tonight, if you haven't already, uh, turn your Bibles to that passage Sam read, uh, to Acts chapter 2. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 41 through 47. So Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. As he said, this is really a, a continuation of the story that we have been uh, studying here in Acts chapter 2. And in his commentary on Acts, John Stott actually divides this chapter into three parts. He says, first you have the event, then you have the explanation, and then finally you have the effects. And so in verses 1 through 13, you have the event itself when uh, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit upon his church, when he, when he clothes his people with power so that they might do the work that had been prepared for them to do. So they, they might actually go out as witnesses and gather in the harvest that the Lord had prepared, even to the ends of the earth. But as we know, in the middle of the chapter, we have Peter's sermon, which is really an explanation of what is going on. When the, when the crowds saw these spirit-empowered disciples, and especially when they heard them speaking in tongues, they were confused. They didn't understand what was going on. And so Peter explains to the crowds that this is actually the fulfillment of what God had foretold. Through the prophet Joel. Joel had spoken of a day when the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And that was happening now because Christ had been made to be Lord and Christ. He had become Lord and Savior. He had, he had defeated death and, and ascended to the Father's right hand where he now ruled and where he, from where he poured out his Spirit upon his people. And as we saw last week, when the, the people heard that, they were cut to the heart. They realized that Christ had come to his own and his own had not received him. They, they realized that they had rejected the long-awaited Messiah. And so they pleaded with Peter, what shall we do? Is there still any hope for us? And it was in response to that plea that, that Peter called on them to repent and be baptized. And now today we are going to look at the effects of that explanation, of the, the effects of that proclamation of the word, explaining this outpouring of the Spirit. In some senses, Peter's sermon is actually the first effect. Remember, Peter is the one who, who on the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, cowered even before a servant girl because he feared for his life. And yet now he stands in the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming Jesus Christ to be both Lord and Christ. That is actually the first effect of this spirit empowerment, that, that bold proclamation of the word. But our focus this morning is going to be on the effects that he talks about that Luke gives us beginning at verse 41. And really we're going to be able to divide this into two parts. There are really two effects that we see here. First we see conversion, and then we see And so in response to Peter's sermon, in response to Peter's proclamation of the word, the, the good news concerning Christ, we're told that, that many people come to Christ. Many people are saved. Luke puts it this way. They, those who received his word were baptized. Now the first thing that I want us to, to notice in that is that conversion is a response to the word. 
You are born again. You are saved when you respond to the word, the word of the apostles. Think about what uh, Luke is talking about here. He is, he is talking about Peter's testimony concerning Christ. He, he is talking about the proclamation that we saw back in verse 36 when, when Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. It is the, the proclamation of, of Jesus Christ as, as Lord and as Savior, as the Christ, that is the central message of the church. Think about Paul saying, Him we proclaim. When he, when he seeks to summarize his entire ministry, when he, when he seeks to, to explain to the Colossians what he is doing, he, he says it simply this way, We proclaim Christ. In fact, in his letter to the Corinthians, to a, to a people who were maybe looking for a little bit more uh, philosophy, a little bit more worldly wisdom, he says, listen, when I was among you, I resolved to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ now reigning at the right hand of the Father, Christ uh, promised to come again one day to bring to completion the, the good work which he has begun. The work of Jesus Christ is the central proclamation of the church. The central proclamation of the church is, is not an ethic. It, it is not a, a moral principle. Of course, it has ethical and, and moral implications. We're going to see that those who, who receive Christ as Lord will walk in him. It will transform our lives, but we are not, the, church, the church's primary message is not simply a, a message of a new way to live. It, it is not a new way to organize your days. It, it is not a, a new uh, agenda to follow or a goal to pursue. All those things are the, the fruit of coming under a new king. And it is that Jesus is Lord. It is that Jesus is Christ. That is the central message of the church. And it is responding to that message. As Luke says, it is receiving that message. That is the beginning. That is the, the, the act of conversion. It is the message concerning Jesus Christ that must be received. And so what does it mean to, to receive this word? What, is, what does it mean to receive the word concerning Jesus Christ, the Lord? Well, to receive it, obviously, must mean that, that it is accepted as true, that it is believed. It, it has to begin there. We receive the testimony concerning Jesus Christ, first of all, by believing it, by acknowledging that, that, that this, is, this is true in the, 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 the fullest sense of that word, that Jesus was a man, yes, who, who walked among us, but that he was incarnate God. He was God come in the flesh. That the eternal, infinite God somehow took on feeble, frail, finite flesh. And that He lived among us as a man. And that He died for mankind. These are historical truths. These are historical facts. This is the, the message that must be believed. But of course, we don't stop with his death. We, we believe that he, on the third day, rose again from the dead in space and time, bodily rising from the grave. And that he then ascended 
physically, bodily, to the right hand of the Father, where He now reigns. We must believe these things. We must receive these things as true. They are not metaphors. They are not similes. They are not illustrations that that help us to make sense of, of how to live our best lives here and now. These are historical truths, and those historical truths are the ground of our hope. And so conversion begins with believing them. But of course, it is not enough simply to accept them as true. To receive the apostles' testimony concerning Jesus Christ is so much more than just believing. It it entails a response, an, an appropriate response to the proclamation of such things. And what is that response? Well, it's the response that that Peter sets forth in the previous paragraph. Again, when the people ask, what shall we do? He, He gives them clear directions. He says, repent and be baptized. Repent. Turn from your sins. Turn explicitly from your rebellion against the King, from your rejection of the Lord. Repent and and change your mind concerning who Jesus Christ is. Receive Him as your Lord. Don't just acknowledge that He is Lord. Devote yourself to Him as Lord. This is what it means to to repent, to turn from our autonomy, to turn from from being the captain of our own ship, from being the Lord of our own life, and bowing before the One who is Lord of all. Repent and be baptized. Baptism here is, is the first expression of faith. It is it is an acknowledgement that you are coming under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is being marked publicly as as belonging to Him and to His community, as being under His covenant headship. Repent and be baptized. Put your faith in Him. Be publicly marked as as one who, who follows Christ. This is the response that is called for. This is what it means to receive the Apostle's Word. And notice what Luke tells us. There were many who received the word that day. Luke tells us that that 3,000 souls were added that day. Now, 3,000 is a lot. That is is a a, a huge harvest. We don't know for sure how many were were listening that day, but but we know that that 3,000 people responded to Peter's sermon. They they responded to to Peter's call for repentance and faith. And 3,000 is is more than than many faithful pastors will see in a lifetime of ministry. This this is a supernatural harvest. This is is something that is awe-inspiring, and rightly so. But it probably wasn't everyone who was there that day. We don't know for sure who was there, but we can guess that that while 3,000 responded, there were at least some who did not respond. We know this because there are still unbelievers in Jerusalem after this. And so the the question is, what do we learn from this? What do we we learn from 3,000 being added to their number on that day? I, I think we can draw two 
principles, two encouragements from this truth. The first is, is simply this. God is able to save sinners. God is able to, to grant repentance unto life, even to those who, who only 50 days previously had rejected Him. And so, God is able to save sinners. He is able to make the dead alive. It's why we're here this morning. It's what we confessed as we entered into to worship this morning, that God, because of the great love with which He has loved us, according to His great mercy, has made us who were dead and our sins alive together with Christ. We have been united with Him in His death and resurrection. Paul goes on to say, by grace you have been saved. This is God's doing. This is God's gift. God is able to make the dry bones live. And this ought to give us great encouragement, great confidence to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to any and to all. There are some who you believe will never believe. There are some who, who you believe are, are beyond the pale, beyond hope, too far gone. And humanly speaking, you're not wrong. But God is able to save sinners. God is able to, to save those whose hearts are hard against Him. God is able to save those whose hearts are full of malice against Him. I was having a conversation with another pastor this week, and he was telling me about a, a conversation that he had, had had with someone in town who was, to say it mildly, bitter against the church. Bitter against Christianity. Bitter against Christ. And he said it was work for him to remember that the proclamation of the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. It was work for him to remember that his job was, was not to persuade this person. His job was, was not to convince them. His job was to proclaim the good news of God because he had no power to save. The power was in the gospel. And so our responsibility is to point people to Christ. Our responsibility is to lay before them the good news of the gospel concerning Christ. Because it is through that gospel that God saves sinners. And so who is it that, that, that you think is too far gone? Who is it that you think doesn't want to hear the gospel again? Of course we need to be winsome. Of course we need to be wise but let us not fail to be bold, to remind again and again and again that there is a Savior of sinners and He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will repent and believe upon Him, you will be saved. Because God uses that simple proclamation to save sinners. But of course that leads us to the second point that we can learn from this. God uses that simple proclamation to save sinners. We, we see this actually explicitly down in verse 47 where we were told that the Lord added to their number. This, this salvation is not Peter's work. 
As Paul will say later in one of his, his letters, you know, he says, we can plant the seed, we can water, we can, we can till the field and do the gardening, but it is God who gives the growth. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who saves. Evangelism is not automatic. Simply getting the chance to speak doesn't guarantee the outcome that our hearts desire. We, we can't force it. We can't make it happen. We are utterly dependent upon the Lord working through the proclamation of His Word. And so while we can evangelize boldly, we must do so humbly with a spirit of absolute dependence upon the working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those to whom we speak. And again, this, this gives us, this, this, this humility lets us be gentle. It lets us be patient. It lets us acknowledge that, that God is the one who does the work. I can tend to the responsibilities that He has given me. I can plant the seed. I can, I can try to water. But ultimately, it is only God who gives the growth. Because the first effect of the preaching of the Gospel is conversion. And it is, it is an effect because it is what God chooses to do through His Gospel. And so, we see conversion as the first effect. But there's a, there's a second effect here. And we see it hinted at there in that little word, added. So conversion is the first effect, but conversion produces community. We're told that 3,000 were added. Added to what? They were added to the church. They, they were added to their number. They were added to this fellowship of the believers that we see described in the last paragraph of this chapter. And it is that community, it is that fellowship of believers, that, that new church that, that God is beginning to establish in and through Jesus Christ that is the second effect of the outpouring of the Spirit upon His disciples. And Luke gives us actually a fourfold description of this community. He tells us that there were four things that, that this community was devoted to. And we're not going to have time to look at all four of them this morning. So we're going to try to get through the first two. We're going we're to try to focus on the first two of these, of these devotions that this new community shares. The four are that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. And they were devoted to the prayers. We're going to look at the, their devotion to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Let's, let's start with their devotion to the apostles' teaching. We, we've already actually been hinting around this. We, we said that they received the word. They, they received the, the testimony. And again, that's, that's vital to what's going on. But notice, the apostles' proclamation, the apostles' word, the apostles' testimony concerning Jesus Christ was not just what got them in the door. It wasn't that they, they needed the gospel to get in. But rather, they were devoted. They became devoted to this teaching. They, be, they became devoted to the, the apostles' testimony concerning Jesus Christ. It became a defining characteristic of their daily lives. And so why was it the apostles' teaching? Well, again, notice what Luke tells us. The apostles were those who were selected by 
Jesus himself to be witnesses to his uh, person and work, to, to who he is and, and what he has done. And the church, the early church, knew that they were the witnesses. They knew that they were the authority because God publicly attested the apostles. In the same way that he had publicly attested Jesus before the religious authorities and before the, the people of Israel. In the same way that he had worked miracles and signs and wonders through Jesus so that people might know this is someone you should listen to. So now he publicly attests the apostles. We, we see in verse 43 that all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God is publicly validating those in whom he has entrusted his authority. He is, he is publicly validating those whom Jesus Christ has chosen to, to speak for himself. This is vital. It, it is vital that we understand this. It is vital that we understand that Jesus himself laid the foundation upon which he would build his church. And he made it abundantly clear through public attestation who those foundation stones were who the church ought to listen to. It is not the case that there were these competing Christianities in the early church and only through political maneuvering did, did one gain the ascendancy. Jesus himself laid the foundation of the church and Jesus publicly attested that work, that foundation-laying work, by working signs and wonders through the apostles so that the whole church knew it is the apostles' testimony that is true. It is the apostles' testimony that is to be received. It is why we are today an apostolic church. It is why today we turn to the scriptures, the written record of the apostles' testimony, as our only and final authority in questions of faith and practice. You see, Jesus laid the foundation of his church, and he publicly attested that foundation. And, it wasn't their, and their testimony not only got them in the door, it was not only the threshold, but it was the foundation upon which the entire church now rests. It was to this testimony that the church became devoted. And, and think about what that language means. What does it mean to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? What does that mean? It, it can only mean that they were eager learners. It can only mean that they were eager to, to know and to understand and to comprehend what the apostles taught and, and what the, what, to what the apostles testified concerning Jesus. Now I understand that, that we are not all wired the same way. We are not all the same type of learner. When I pick up a new hobby... I read about it and I, I study it. It's what I do. It's the way that I'm, I'm wired. When I started playing racquetball, you know, some 10 or, or 12 years ago, I went and downloaded the entire William and Mary uh, textbook on racquetball and read it. Normal people don't do that. My, my brothers make fun of me. When I started biking just recently because I hurt my back and I couldn't run anymore, I watch videos about how to change your gears. That is what I do. Not all of us are wired that way. This is not a call that everyone has to be an academic student. But everyone does have to be an eager learner. Are you eager to know what the apostles say? Are you eager to understand the truths that they are proclaiming? 
Are you, are you eager to be together with God's people so that you might grow in the knowledge of the will of God? Are you an eager learner? That's what this means. To be devoted to the Word is to be an eager learner. But of course, it doesn't stop there. One who is an eager learner is not eager to learn just for his own intellectual benefit and, and satisfaction. It is not just that, that these speculations are like honey in our mouth. It, it is not just that, that it's an intellectual exercise. But rather, we want to know that we might do. And to be devoted to the apostles' teaching is not only to be devoted to understanding it, to, to, under, to knowing it, to being filled with the knowledge of it, but to be devoted to it is to be eager to be a follower of it. To put it into practice. Not only to know that Jesus is Lord, but to live like He is Lord. Not only to know that Jesus is the Christ, but to rest upon Him as the Christ. To be devoted to the apostles' teaching is to be devoted to living a new Life. I, I said that the, the central gospel message is, is not a, a, a moral principle or, a, or an ethic. But it certainly leads to a new moral life. It leads to a new way of, of living as, as we seek now to honor Jesus Christ as Lord. As we seek to walk in the one whom we have received. It means submitting every aspect of our daily routine to His Lordship. Even submitting the routine to His Lordship. What are the things that are to, to fill up our days? What are the things that we are to prioritize? This is what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. And this is the first mark of true conversion. And therefore, we need to examine ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, do we, do we have this devotion? Are we eager learners? Or are we like a child in a math class that's only there because they have to be. What's the point? Why do I have to learn this stuff? Have you ever heard that? I hear it from my children. We ought not to be asking that question. But we ought to be coming hungry to know and to learn and to understand that we might live differently. Because if we are not devoted to the apostles' teaching, if we are not devoted to learning and, and, and following their word, then it suggests that our profession of faith might be just mere words. The one who has been converted is a member of a new community devoted to the word of the apostles. They will be eager to learn. They will be eager to follow. They, they won't always do it well. We are weak. We are finite. We are stumbling creatures. But we will be eager to know and to obey the word of Jesus Christ spoken through His apostles. Because this is a mark of conversion. But it's not the only mark. There's a second mark here that Luke talks about. And that is that they were devoted not only to the apostles' teaching, but they were devoted to the fellowship. 
I don't take this to mean that they were devoted to fellowship. They, it's not that they were devoted to fellowshipping, to, to getting together with one another. Of course, that is a consequence. That is a, a result. But their devotion is to the fellowship. They are, they are devoted to this new community of which they are a part. And it is actually their devotion to the fellowship that leads them to fellowship, that, that leads them to come together as, as often as possible. It would seem in these early days, at least, that they were, they were coming together daily. As the quote that Sam used earlier, they, they couldn't get enough of each other. They were doing life together. They were sharing their lives with one another. They, they were coming together as often as possible. And here, at least, the, the principal expression of their devotion to this new community, their devotion to this new fellowship, is that they were sharing their physical and material resources with one another. Because to be devoted to the fellowship is to be devoted to the good of the fellowship. And one of the goods that is foundational and essential is the material good. These people needed to eat. They needed a place to stay. They, they, they needed a way to, to keep warm. If they were going to be in fellowship and if they were going to be following Jesus in their daily lives. It's, it's why Jesus teaches us to pray for daily bread. He knows we need it. Daily bread is part of the provision that we need in order to do the things that he's given us to do. It's part of our common good. And this group of believers were devoted to seeing that everyone in the community had the basic material resources that they needed daily to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now I understand that for many modern Americans, this this description of the early church makes us nervous. It, it makes us nervous because it, it sounds a little bit too much like communism, and we don't like that. I understand, and, and so let me be as clear as I can be. That's not at all what Luke is talking about. There, there is no state redistribution of wealth going on here. The state isn't involved at all. This is a, a fellowship of believers sharing their blessings with one another. But let me challenge you, if, you, if your gut-level response to this is sort of anti-communism, <laughs> turn that off and allow yourself to see the absolute beauty of this description of the early church. This is a picture of a beautiful community. This is what community is supposed to look like. This is what fellowship is supposed to look like. Who would not want to be a member of a community like this? A community that, that shares with one another so that every need is met. This is a restoration of human fellowship, at least approaching what it was meant to be like in the very beginning before Adam's rebellion, before sin and death entered the world. This is a foretaste, a glimpse of the coming kingdom of God, of how we will live for all eternity. But there's something else I want you to realize about this. I want you not only to realize that it is beautiful, I also want you to, to realize that it is, in some sense, realized today. Again, I, I hear it all the time. I hear people point to this text, and, and they point to it to bash the contemporary church. 
You see what the early church was like? We're nothing like that. You've heard that, I'm sure. It's simply not true. It is simply not true. Maybe not perfectly, but this is a description of Trinity. This is a description of this community. And it is a description of many of the churches in town. We will simply not let needs go unmet. We will respond. We will come along our neighbors. Now, we don't always know because Americans are kind of private. <laughs> but when we know about needs, when we know about brokenness, when we, we know that there is something that needs to be addressed, we address it. We have deacons who do an amazing job at this church coming alongside of our people and responding to material needs. And so not only do I want you to see that this is beautiful, I want you to see this beauty in your local church. We are doing this, and it is good. And it is an expression of conversion. It is an expression of the new life that is in Jesus Christ. But of course, the fellowship that they were devoted to, it's, Luke focuses here on, on the, the, the sharing of material goods. But of course, we know from the rest of the New Testament that it goes beyond that. That it is not just sharing material goods, but it is, it is sharing all blessings, all goods. We, we know, for example, from, from Ephesians chapter 4 that the, the church grows up in love as each part, as each member does its part. As each member speaks the truth in love. That is, a same, that is a part of the same devotion to fellowship, speaking the truth in love into one another's lives, sharing spiritual encouragement, sparing correction, sharing even rebuke when it is needed. This is what it means to be devoted to fellowship. It means understanding that you have been blessed to be a blessing. It means understanding that you are a steward of resources that you can use, yes, for your own enjoyment. God gives us good things that we might enjoy them. But he has given you good things that you might enjoy them in fellowship with other believers, in fellowship with your faith family. This is what devotion to the fellowship looks like. It is an absolute devotion to the good of your neighbor. Now, of course, our responsibility doesn't end with the walls of the church. We have a responsibility to do good in the community, to do good to all, as Paul puts it. But even Paul in that very text acknowledges, but beginning with the household of faith. This is our first responsibility. This is our first uh, circle of, of moral obligation. And we focus here, we begin here, we love one another well, and it is beautiful. Because we have been converted because we have been devoted to a new Lord, a Lord who gave himself sacrificially for the good of his people, that his people might find their delight and joy in giving themselves for the good of his community. That's what we have been called to. That's the, the community that is produced by the spirit-empowered proclamation of the word. A community of people who are devoted to the apostles' teaching and who are devoted to one another, that they might live together in beautiful community under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And because we have been called into such a community, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together.
Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. And we pray now that you would be working in us this devotion. This devotion to Jesus as Lord. This devotion to the word of his apostles. And this devotion to the, the fellowship of his people. Father, do this to the praise of your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.